scriptures and turn to John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the last half of that chapter. Last week we began and looked at Jesus' teaching on him shepherding the flock in the context of the Pharisees. And of the Feast of Tabernacles. Here we come to a different feast in the second half of the chapter. But I want to describe someone for you in vague terms. This person in history made free use of Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty in the Christian confessions, which would become pillars of a new government. He assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down with understanding the historic responsibility that he was being given. He handed out pious stories to the press, especially to the church. He showed his tattered Bible to people. And declared that he drew strength from this great work. And the masses welcomed him as a man sent by God. This man's name? Adolf Hitler. He went on to do some of the most horrific things, acts, that the world has ever known. His words did not line up with his actions. When you want to know who a person really is, you listen to his words, but you look at what he does, don't you? And that's what Jesus is asking the Jews to do as they come to him at the Feast of Dedication. He says to them, listen to my words. But also, look at what I've done. Look with, with me at verse 22. It says, he came, Jesus came to the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. 
Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and set, sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do my, what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many, many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man is true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. In a way, this section that we just covered serves two purposes in John's gospel. It, it kind of serves to tee up the final week of Jesus' life. That really covers chapters 11 through 20. That's what we're going to be looking at in the span of seven days starting next week. And it, this section serves to tee that up. But it also serves a second, second function, if you will. It kind of concludes... Jesus' formal ministry, his, his traveling ministry, his itinerant ministry. If you notice in verse 40, his ministry is ending at the Jordan, the banks of the Jordan, right where it began three years earlier. He's come full circle. His itinerant traveling ministry is accomplished. And it is here at this coda to his ministries that the Jews approach him and they ask him very plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Christ, Messiah is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah, Messiah. Now, it may seem like a kind of out of the blue question, but it's really not. Again, if you've been with us in this study, you know that John uses the context very powerfully to help us understand. And here he gives us the context of this discussion as the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication, as many of you know, is what we commonly call Hanukkah. It's an extra-biblical, in other words, it's not in Scripture that they should celebrate this, but they celebrated it nonetheless. It was a celebration where the Jews remembered that they had been freed by the Greeks 160 years earlier. The Greeks moved in in that time period and took over um, Israel, much as the Romans had at Jesus' time. But the, the Greeks went a step further. They, they, they desecrated the temple. Uh, if you know your history, you know that uh, a, a Greek soldier went into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar, on the mercy seat. And it desecrated the temple. But this festival, 
the Feast of Dedication, is how they celebrated when, when Judas Maccabeus went in and retook the temple area and kicked the Jews out. And so this, this festival is really a looking back, a looking back, celebrating and remembering being freed from oppression, from political oppression. But at the same time, this festival also had a second purpose, and that was to look forward to the Messiah, who they believed was a political Messiah, right? That's what they were always looking for. They were always looking for the Messiah, but it was the Messiah that was going to free them from their political oppressors and restore the nation Israel to a sovereign nation. That's what they were looking for. And so in the Feast of Dedication, it comes as no surprise that the Jews would come to Jesus and ask them flat out, are you the one that we've been hoping for in, 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 this, in this Feast of Dedication in Hanukkah? Are you that guy? In other words, they're asking him, are you going to free us from Rome? They're asking the political question here. With that in mind, what they ask Jesus is not out of context at all. Are you this Messiah? Tell us plainly. Now, they might not be asking with the right understanding in mind. They, they're looking for a political Messiah, and Jesus is not a political Messiah. That's going to come, if you will, in his second advent. He's a saving Messiah. He's a sacrificial Messiah. And they didn't understand this. But Jesus says quite plainly here, taking their question at face value, I did tell you. And he tells them in two ways. First, he tells them by saying, look at my words. That's what he says in verse 25. He says, I did tell you, but you did not believe. I have told you over and over again. Now, some accuse Jesus once again here as being evasive. You know, just say yes. Just say three letters, Jesus. There's a reason he doesn't do that, and we're going to get that to that in a second. But for you and I, for our purposes, we have to understand that he has been telling them over and over verbally, hasn't he? He's been telling them over and over. He declared the, through the I am statements that we've been studying that he is the Messiah, God incarnate, come to save his people. John's gospel is organized in one fashion, in one way, by seven I am statements, right? We've talked about this. We've encountered four of them so far, each one in its own way saying a unique, in a unique way, I am God in this way, right? That wonderful Greek construction, ego eimi. Whenever he said I am, the Jew's mind would go back to the burning bush, to Exodus 3, when God said, here's my name. Moses, go tell them I am. That's my name. And Jesus picking up on that and saying, I am the bread of life. 
He was claiming to be the true spiritual food that every person needs and must have to live beyond this life. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, that's how he he answered Satan, isn't it? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Word makes us go back to John 1, 1, doesn't it? The word was with God. And the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. He is the bread. He is the only thing that feeds our deepest desires. He's the only thing that feeds that, you know, as people say, that cross-shaped hole in our heart. A little trite, but understandable. When he said, I am the light, Jesus was claiming to be, if you remember, that pillar of fire that we just sang about that guided people to the promised land. And he was saying, I am this one and the same God who will guide you to not a physical promised land, not a geographic one, but a spiritual promised land where there'll be no tears, there'll be no wants, there'll be no lack. When he said, I am the gate, Jesus was proclaiming to be that great protector that we all deep down want, don't we? Don't we want security? Isn't that one of the idols that we pursue in different ways? I mean, as you sit there, just think for yourself, what is it that I am pursuing so passionately for security in my life? Is it a man or a woman? Is it money? Is it house? Is it, is it just to be warm in the winter? What is it? Jesus is that great protector that lays down in front of that small enclosure and will not let you be harmed. When he said, I am the good shepherd, Jesus was saying, listen, if you don't get it yet, I am the fulfillment of that wonderful psalm that you say at all your funerals, Psalm 23. I am that person. I am the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 that the, the, the shepherds are, didn't take care of you in Babylon, but I am the person in the fulfillment of the shepherd that will come and will take care of you and will tend you. I'm the ultimate shepherd of Israel the good protector, who as a good shepherd puts himself between danger and death. And that's what he did. He stood between us and death, didn't he? Jesus is thinking of all of these when he says, I did tell you. I told you over and over again. And he tells them here, In another way, look at verse 27. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Who can say that but God? Do you realize what he's saying to to these Jews? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I... The Father are one. Did you hear it? I and the Father are one. They understood what he was saying then, didn't they? They heard. And then the very next line, they pick up the stones, don't they? 
They pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. And he asked them in verse 33, he says, ho, 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 ho. Verse 32, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they go on and say, not for any of these, but because you, a mere man, claim to be God. He's just told them who he is. The Messiah God, God incarnate, your Savior. That I've been, I, I took the whole Old Testament to tell you was coming. I am he. I and the Father are one. And Jesus uses an interesting but confusing illustration, a confusing argument to prove this to them. He says in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Now this is a confusing argument because he's using a rabbinic argument, an argument that the rabbis and the, and the Jews would know very well but that is totally lost on us. And after I explain it to you, you'll go from this this much lostness to this much lostness. Because it still doesn't, the the importance of this argument does, does not weigh on our minds. James Boyce says that uh, this argument from lesser to greater, it's a rabbinic argument from lesser to greater, James Boyce says, were of great importance to the rabbis, but seems at best of minor importance to people today. And I think that's true. After studying this and studying this and studying this, and I'm going, okay, there has to be some aha moment here. You know, I'm going to unlock this, and it's going to be awesome for us to, under, to, to go through this this Sunday. And after all my effort, there's no aha moment here. But I feel like you have to understand what Jesus is saying as I had to struggle through this. What he's doing is he's pulling, going back to Psalm 82. And I'd, if you're a Bible turner, you can turn there to Psalm 82 because that's where he quotes from. He quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6. Psalm 82 is a scathing condemnation of the leaders of Israel. And Asaph uses the word gods, small g, to describe the leaders of Israel. And these leaders, these gods, were accused of defending the unjust and showing partiality to the wicked. We can just read through this psalm. It's a short psalm. Verse 1 says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. And you can see it's in quotes there, meaning he's not meaning uh, gods as in deities. He's using it in a different way, Israel's leaders. Israel's leaders, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them 
from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. The leaders of Israel walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, God said, you are God's. You are Israel's leaders. You are the sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge of the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. He's saying, listen, you're, not doing, a, you're, you're doing an awful job and you're, you're doing things backwards and you're going to be judged for it. And just remember, in case you think that you're, you're so great, high and mighty, you're going to die just like the rest. And you'll be judged just like the rest. And so Jesus' argument is that in this psalm, the word gods is used to describe the leaders. And Jesus is basically saying, if the word God, small g, can be used of people who are no more than Israel's leaders, why can't it be used of the one who is capital G God? If those people can be called gods, certainly I can be called gods. Do you see what he's saying? He's really proclaiming in a different way, using the word of God that he is God incarnate. I'd like us to notice one more thing here before we leave Psalm 82. The psalm that he's quoting, as I've said, is against the leaders of Israel and who is standing right before Jesus at the Feast of Dedication. The capital J Jews, the leaders of Israel. And they're just like in this psalm, understanding nothing, walking in darkness. That is how he's describing them, and that is how they're acting. That's the point of the interchange here. Here the Messiah stands right before them, and they're dark. They understand nothing. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. And here we see the heart of the matter. They hear Jesus, but they don't see, but they don't understand who Jesus is. They see Jesus, but they don't perceive who Jesus is. There's something that you have to know as believers about reading the Gospels. Actually, you have to know this about reading the Bible. Gospel ministry is predominantly a futile activity. That's going to sound strange. Gospel ministry is predominantly a futile endeavor. It's a hearing and not understanding ministry. When Jesus spoke and taught and preached about himself in the kingdom of of God throughout his three years here, he spoke and taught to the masses, but they didn't understand. Not even his disciples understood. He had to explain the parables to them. You know, the, the secrets to the kingdom of God have been opened up to you, he said to them at one point, explaining the parable of the soils or the seeds. Only a thin layer of people will ever understand and perceive. That's Jesus' experience. That's the meaning of verse 26 and 27. My sheep hear my voice 
You're not my sheep. My sheep will hear my voice and follow me. You do not believe because why? Because you're not my sheep. I'm saying the same thing to, the, to a group of people, and some people get it, and some people don't. A, a, a shepherd goes to a pen, and he does his specific whistle, and the, his sheep turn their head. And all the rest of the sheep stay there. See, Jesus' ministry was foreshadowed by Isaiah's. If you know anything about Isaiah's ministry, he was given the ministry in Isaiah 6, and he was told by Yahweh himself, Isaiah, you're going to go out, and you're going to preach, and guess what? They're not going to hear you. They're not going to understand. You're going to show them, and they won't perceive that's exactly the ministry that, that Paul was handed. We read it. He was telling the Jews about his ministry. It's the same as Isaiah's. It's the same as Jesus's. I love, I mean, I, I thank Claire so much for gathering the, the youth and watching the book of Acts, the video of the book of Acts. And it literally was the words of Acts just put into into action. And when we got to the end of that movie, it, it just struck me because it's visual. You know, we can read something and go, hmm. We see it and we go, oh. And to watch the end of that movie when Paul is in Rome and he's under guard and, he, and all the Jews come to him, the Roman uh, uh, leaders, and Paul starts preaching the gospel to them and you see them their faces starting to go. And you see them look at each other, shake their head. And you see them, one by one, leaving. And that's why Paul says, Acts 28, 27, he says, I'll tell you, but you're not the sheep. You don't understand. You'll hear, but you won't understand. You'll, you'll see, but you won't perceive. And that's the ministry that we've been given, guys. You want to know your ministry? It's Isaiah's ministry. It's Jesus' ministry. It's Paul's ministry. It's our ministry. You tell people. And they'll hear you. Their eardrums will work. The vibration of their eardrum will work. But predominantly, they won't understand. You'll show them Jesus, and they won't perceive it. We've been given the ministry to tell people about the perfect life of Jesus, that he didn't sin in thought, word, or deed. He didn't have a bad thought. He didn't have a stray thought that went into the sewer like ours do the hateful and murderous thoughts that we do that just fly through our minds. He was perfect. He was the perfect lamb. And he came, and what this, this day that signifies, this Palm Sunday, he came, and it was an offering. He knew what he was doing. 
Jesus had no preconception that when they were doing this and laying down their garments and cheering and saying Hosanna, he had no preconception that they were going to support him. Come five days from now. He knew what he was doing. He voluntarily went into their grasp. And they declared him guilty for a sin that he didn't commit. And they killed him for something he didn't do. And that's the cross. He voluntarily gave his life so that we would have life. He took the pain so that we wouldn't have the pain. He bled so that we wouldn't have to bleed. He died so that we would not have to die. And to prove that it was true, he rose from the dead. We went to a conference this past weekend, Mark and I, this past two days, and the, the, one of the speakers there said something very provocative, and I'll say it to you just to put it in your minds for this week as we march towards Easter and the resurrection. You know, the, the, the evangelistic question that you ask people is, where are the bones of Jesus? Where are the bones of Jesus? The answer is, they're in his resurrected body. Right now, he's alive. He's alive with bones. He's not a mist. And when you hear that gospel, and you're sitting here, and you hear that, what I just explained... The question is the same question that should pop into your mind, that popped into the minds of the people at Pentecost. What must I do to be saved? If this is true, and listen very closely, if that, if something stirred in you as I was feebly explaining the gospel, if something clicked for you, when you heard the whistle of your shepherd, you might be a sheep sitting right here. You're hearing the shepherd's voice. The response is the same. Repent of your sins and be baptized. Because only God's sheep believe what Jesus says. I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm your Savior. Only God's sheep believe that. Only God's sheep see what he does and they get it. It's kind of like a smack on the top of your head. And that's what Jesus points to. Secondly, not only his words, he says, listen to my words, but secondly, Look at my actions. Look at my actions. Verse 25, he says, he turned back to John. He says, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. 
verses 37 and 38. Do not believe me unless I do what the Father does, actions. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is me and I and the Father. Jesus says, I've not only told you so, I've shown you so. That's why John organizes his gospel in seven words and seven actions. Words and actions go together. These miracles speak just as loudly of who Jesus is than his words do. That's why Jesus asked them, for what miracles are you stoning me? Because whether he says, I and the Father are one, he says, that's as powerful as changing water into wine. It's saying the same thing. Do you believe that the want, what the water and the wine miracle show you? That relationship replaces ritual. Those are stone, seven stone jars filled with cleansing water for, for ritual cleansing. And he turns it into wine. What he's saying is your relationship is not based on what you do and how you can get clean before God. It's what I am going to do that I make you clean before God. It's only through Jesus' work that you get there. The shedding of his wine blood, if you will. When we take it later on today, think of that. He's making a new covenant with you. Do you believe in the healing of the official son miracle? Do you believe that you too will be saved just by believing God, taking him at his word? Do you remember that where the official comes and, and uh, Jesus says, go, your son will live. And the official takes him at his word, it says. That's the way to life is taking Jesus at his word. You're saved by grace, grace through faith in Jesus Christ's life, death, substitution, and resurrection. You believe the miracle of the healing of the man at Pool of Bethesda, what that's saying, that you're hopeless and helpless without Christ. He was there for 38 years trying to get well. And Jesus finally came and said, do you really want to get well? Boy, that's a question for all of us. Do you really, really, really want to get well? especially in your sanctification, do you really, really, really want to give up that idol? Do you believe the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, that we need something more than physical food? Do you believe the walking on the water miracle and what it says? If you remember, they were straining at their oars all night, not making any headway, the text says. And as soon as Jesus got in the boat, they were at shore. Do you believe the blind man miracle? Jesus is the only person who can give us spiritual sight that we are blind to our own sin. Blind to the cliff that we're running towards. Blind to Jesus standing between us and the cliff. And when we bump into him, he takes the fall for us. Jesus opens our eyes to see that he actually does take the fall for us. That he died. We look over the cliff, it's his body at the bottom. But he didn't stay dead. That's next week's sermon. 
point is these miracles point to Jesus and who he is and what he did, and they still do today. There's a question in your discovery group notes. It says, what role does miracles play in your life? Do you think they should be a normal part of your life? In other words, do you seek miracles? Is that a critical part of your faith? It's an honest question. It deserves an honest answer, and I hope you do in your discovery groups this week. But I want to encourage you this morning. The greatest miracle that Jesus does still do and that you can still witness is a changed life, a converted life, a, a redeemed life. Don't ask the Lord for a fig tree to bud. I implore you. Those are, those are predominantly self-centered prayers. Ask that you can be used to change a life, that God will use you to change a life. There may be a miracle right in front of you. I had the opportunity this week to hear two testimonies. One of a person at the conference we were at, a young guy named Edwin, who had been radically and miraculously changed by the gospel. His life course radically altered. And I asked him, what, what do you want to do? You're here at this conference. You moved out from the West Coast to the East Coast. You're getting education. What do you want to do? And he said, anything the Lord wants me to That's amazing. There's another one that I heard through my father this week. He led, had the privilege to lead one of his friends to uh, Christ recently. And my parents were out to dinner with this couple. And I would let my father tell it in his own words. They went out with this couple and, and the wife sat next to me, my father, about halfway through dinner, she asked me what I had said to her husband to cause the change in his life. I asked her what change she'd been seeing. She described him as more, more relaxed, less uptight, more, much more at peace. She wanted to give me credit for her pos- the positive changes that he was making in their life, in their family. I told her that I didn't change him, but that it was his newfound faith in Christ that was changing him. He writes, she didn't fully get that, but it was grateful for the outcome. And I went on and I told her that I thought he was special to the Lord and that God had a great future for him. That was not easy for her to understand either. So I decided to give her examples. So I told her that he had gone through a kind of death in letting go of placing his personal value on his golf game. This guy was a big golfer. She understood that, he said. You want to know who Jesus really is? Listen to his words. And look at his actions. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and spirit. Pray that you will use what was said here to change hearts in this room. 
In Jesus' name, amen.